1: I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast. We're having Pete Dominic on the show today, and I'm unimpressed that we haven't met yet because he's been in comedy a long, long time, and we're excited to have him. Even though he snowed in up there in New York, how are we doing today, Pete? I'm doing good, man. I love the snow. I love to be on the show
2: with you, and I couldn't be happier to be talking to you and looking out the window at the snow. I got my bird feeder out there, and it's really interesting, the hierarchy of nature like comedy. Have you shoveled the driveway yet? No, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, but instead I'm talking to you, so (laughs) I'll get out there. I tweaked my back, too. I'm 45, and now all of a sudden I have back issues, so that won't stop me, though. I will not stop me. I've got a mix of cannabis and ibuprofen, and I will be out there shoveling.
1: So you're a cannabis guy? You like a little cannabis? Yeah, I grow my own. Nice. Yep, I'm a big
2: gardener. That's my hobby. Mostly it's, you know, vegetables and and herbs, et cetera, but yeah, I always try to keep a few plants. I always I've just started doing it. But yeah, love it. You said you've
1: grown out of the stand up piece a little bit. So what's going on with you these days? Well, you know, the
2: the comedy scene is something that is great when you're in your 20s, you're single, you're working your way up the ranks, you're doing every kind of gig and everything that you need to do to be better and to network and to be a part of that scene. I mean, that's how you have success. You can't really have success if you're not in that scene and coming up. And I mean, you can there are exceptions, but it's much- Charter, obviously. It's a very insular world, you know, comedy, and it's a very mean and cruel world by definition. I mean, we would sit at the comedy clubs, all of them, for years. I would sit at a table with Jim Norton, Robin Williams, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, not all at once, all the time, but they would come in and they would sit, and at that table, everything was equal, and what that meant would be, you can hit the other guy as hard as you want verbally. It does not matter how hard, and I mean, forget about, like, divisive provocative topics like race or gender. Forget that. That was child's play. You'd go right after their family, their core. If they had a vein that popped on their forehead, if one of their eyes was a little lower, I mean, we would just bash each other night in and night out. And at some point, after years of doing that and really thoroughly enjoying it and holding my own, if I do say so myself, I just wanted it to be more of a career and I wanted to be more of a family man. And so I got into more kind of like steady work. And that's around the time I got hired by The Daily Show, which then turned into The Colbert Report, which turned into Sirius XM, which turned into CNN, which now is all cultivated in me broadcasting a podcast from my backyard shed.
1: I mean, that's where we're at. It's your own universe today. And I don't know if you know a little history about us and Bang Productions. We got into comedy about four and a half, five years ago and shook up the system a little bit. So when you talk about the New York model, right, and how they want to put comedians through the system is very interesting to me when I built guys on social media and I took a guy from a trailer to Just for Laughs in two years. The whole industry came after us, tried to take us out. We had our own universe and survived. So with that being said, when you talk about the New York scene, why do they still live on the old model?
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: When there's other ways to get your face and your comedy out there. That's a great question. I,
2: I think the old model is old. I think it's old. And I think that older comics have a harder time adapting to new things. And so those of us that came up in the old model where there was no internet, much less social media, I'm talking about if you came up at a time when I did, I'm now 45 years old and did new faces at Montreal Comedy Festival in 2006, whatever that means. I was 10 years in and they called me a new face, but we used VHS tapes, man. We thought a lot about the camera in the back of the comedy club and the tripod and the, and the audio. And and then you took the tape and you had to convert it and then you had to put a label on it and then you put it in an envelope and then you sent it to an agent, a manager who would never even open that or would and wouldn't watch it. And you would send those tapes far and wide. We talked about your tape all the time. And so we've gone from there to obviously a digital world, to social media, to the fact that you don't even need an audience. If you're just funny, wherever you are sitting in your car, guy like Vic DiBetetto is a great example who came up in that old scene and now he just makes hilarious videos screaming in his car that go viral and he sells tickets. So I think a lot of comics and a lot of People in, in the entertainment business don't ask. What do you want? What do you? What kind of a career do you want? Do you want to be on the road all the time? Do you want to be home? How much money do you want to make? How much is enough? I think those are questions that mature adults, much less comedians who mature much later,
1: often uh, should be asking themselves. So I think that's changed. I think everything's changed, and I think the old model is old. In New York, they would tell a comedian, "If you start going out, get a gig, right? So you go to a showcase, you do a showcase, you book a showcase, and maybe." 50 people come to that show and those 50 people that come to that show have no idea who they're seeing. So they do five of those a week, right? And they pull two to three people that have the same sensitivities as they do and like their comedy. What do you think the growth is compared to taking content and putting it in front of, say, 100,000 people, doubling down on that, right? Creating a look-alike audience after you establish an audience through media, And then book a show on your own. So when the people show up, they already know who they're coming to see. They already like you because they're showing up. So then you have to perform. Where the industry got burned is a lot of people couldn't translate to stage. And that's why we've kind of been successful at is finding people that could translate to stage. But it seems like people still want to live putting people through the hard times, per se.
2: I don't think there are any rules to comedy, to the entertainment business, or to almost any industry. And I think that the way that you're going about it sounds awesome. And I think that people who are, you know, oldies and and don't adapt to new media and and, and do what you're saying, establish the audience the way you're saying it, are losing out in many ways. I think that there's something to be said for a pure comic and not that that's the right thing. I don't buy it. I, I mean, you can do whatever you want. Purist are a real thing. I'm not saying that it's a positive thing. I'm not saying I admire it. I'm saying it's a word to describe somebody who just goes to clubs and entertains whoever's in that club. And I think there is a lot to say about that in terms of looking at a room, seeing who's in the room. And this is what I've always been an expert at. And then making those people laugh, doesn't matter who they are. You can look at them and you can feel them and you could spend a minute talking to them and know exactly what to deliver. And then you have that material basically somewhere in your arsenal and then you survive and you succeed and you get more work because you're so adaptable. But that's all about reading that audience. So I think there's a real difference in terms of what happens digitally without a live audience right there in the room in front of you. And I think we're learning that in a really interesting hybrid way because of the virus and do. virtual shows, but someone like me from the old world does better at at entertaining an audience in a conversational way, knowing what they want virtually because I've already seen them. I've had so much experience with live audiences for 10 years that I know how to make a virtual audience feel whatever I want them to feel. I think you need to develop a skill set in a room with people in it, and there's no way around that. And then I think most importantly, don't even film yourself or put yourself on camera of, whether it's your phone or anywhere else, if you're not good, if you're not ready to be seen, I think that rule still applies. We did not put ourselves, we did not submit ourselves for anything until we were ready and you could not be ready until you fell
1: on your face literally for a long, long time. So I've tried to work with New York comedians and when I give them my business model, yep. it was very, very hard for them to comprehend, <laughs> right? So where's the mesh? Uh, somewhat of a equal medium direction. Yeah that could benefit both sides. You got to
2: meet people where they're at. I think that's the whole key. If they don't want to meet you where you want to meet them, then you've got to take a different route. And I think it's hard for people who are set in their ways to be introduced to a new method, no matter how much promise it shows, because you're just resistant. I mean, it's like doing the dishes a different way. My wife coming in, we've been together 20 years and says, why do you do them that way? I'm like, I've been doing them this way forever. Like I'm not, even though you're right, I'm not changing. This is the way I do the dishes. And I think that's certainly true of, of humans, much less comedians. But, I mean, you know, people should listen, though, too. It's a know it all business, too, especially when you've got a few years under your belt.
1: Do you know a guy named George Gallo? The name sounds pretty familiar. He's out in Long Island. Great comedian. One of the best comedians that I've seen. Live. I mean, this guy was very auto. He could take a sound, whatever he heard. He could repeat the sound on stage. You know, I guess him coming up through the clubs and so forth and us trying to put him in the social world, it just didn't click for him as, as much you know, to try to get him to say, hey, we got to build these numbers so you can sell tickets. You know, a club wants you to sell 100 tickets, 120 tickets for them to, you know, have you several nights and so forth. So we never could communicate on the same page.
2: The problem lies somewhere in what your ambition is. Most artists don't pursue their art in this case, performing art, because they want to spend a lot of time promoting because they want to do what's going to get them more gigs. They just want to go and make people laugh in a room and they want somebody else to maybe do all the promotion and and help them get the gigs and do all the legwork. They're funny and they just want to go do stand up, and the work will come. I think that's a lot of guys. I think it's a lot of guys that are really good on stage and very funny, but they don't have interest in putting in the kind of reps that you need to market and promote. And it's, funny because there's so many great guys that are so good and are trying to do the right thing to market, and promote and, and try different things and failing. And you see it and it's just, it's hard to watch because they're so great on a stage and in a room. And it's like, they just don't have any idea how to promote themselves. I mean, I've been there myself many times, just fall flat in your face, trying to do something.
1: What do you think about these gigs like you have now and the value they bring to a career with all the social media and visual opportunities out there? How do you think those, way out you know like back in the day when you did the tonight show right that was the most pristine opportunity you could get yeah. you know for a comedian yeah. now there's guys i know that are doing the tonight show or whatever and they can't sell a ticket yeah what do you think about the change in the times it's just a saturated saturated market it's just sopping wet with talent and
2: places to showcase talent it's that's it i don't find a lot of interest in even comparing them it's just a saturated market they used to only be a few places and a few ways to see people perform. And now there's literally billions and billions of of outlets to be entertained by. And I think we need to talk about entertainment, too, not just comedy, because what what do people want? I just think it's a good thing. I mean, I think it's good. It means there's more of a meritocracy that people who are very good, in this case, very funny, can succeed just because all they
1: need is their phone. You remember back in the 90s when all the record labels, there was like a thousand record labels. The industry got way diluted. And then all those record labels came back, had to sell off, and it went back to like three or four. Do you see that happening in the entertainment business?
2: Labels are corporations. And I just I see everything becoming more and more fragmented. Any big network. Name your network. It will be beaten up and blown out of the water by some individual guy that just is killing, doing a great show day in and day out, week in and week out. I think mostly that's the the direction we go. Labels are different. That's now archaic. Now it's streams, right? And then ticket sales. No, I think we just get more and more fragmented and people, you know, put in the reps, they get good. You wanted to manipulate an audience in a room. Now you have to know how to manipulate an algorithm. What's trending? Where should I put this? What platform? And that stuff, I will, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the struggle of navigating all that because I'm struggling navigating all that. TikTok, now Clubhouse, come on, man. I'm still on Instagram. I mean, I don't know how any of this shit works very well. I'm not great at it, but you have to be. I'm not complaining about it. I'm not gonna make excuses. You gotta learn it. You gotta learn the stuff if this is where you want to have a career.
1: What is your biggest challenge?
2: Time. I produce a daily podcast with generally two guests. I book it, I host it, I edit it, I post it. I promote it. It's hard enough to do that with just audio. The editing process is something I insist on doing. I insist on owning it all myself and doing it all myself. And so it's a lot of work and what gets lost is the promotion. And so I need, you know, help with editing and promotion and I'll hire someone soon. I'm getting there. It's really growing and I'm really excited by it. It makes it hard. If anything, promotion and thinking about the longer, you know, vision of the, of my podcast and my media empire. Now my you know, I'm doing this from the shed. I, I just want to be able to, support my family and be in my garden.
1: How many episodes have you done so far?
2: I'm on episode 294, but I started going daily in March of 20. So I did three days a week, started in November 19. Then I went daily. So it's hard to compare. People have been doing podcasts for five years, don't have 290 episodes because they do one a week, but I do it every day. Not to compare, but that just gives you a perspective on on it. So I put it out every day.
1: That is a lot of work. We've done, I think, four this week. You get enough content out there and you send it to the right places and it's good content, I think you can be successful. It's just navigating that and understanding that. I worked with a company called Diply four years ago and met these guys who really have no concept of creative in the entertainment world or Hollywood. They really don't understand Hollywood. They're strictly numbers. Let's make this piece of content, this piece of content, this piece of content. Yeah. So, Long story short, I hired a guy that worked for this company. They were one of the fastest growing companies in Canada. and My idea was, all right, how do I I take this guy who's a Silicon Valley guy and we take my experience in Hollywood and how do we mesh that? We're getting close to something really, really good, but that's what we're trying to do right now.
2: Good luck. That's awesome. I think that for me, somebody's talked about when I first started this, someone I trust producer I used to work with at Sirius XM. He's like, don't overdo it. You know, quality matters more than quantity. And I used to agree with that. And now I kind of feel like the more that you put out of content and different types of content. Listen, I mean, I interview academics and artists and journalists and scientists, all types of highbrow, you know, intellectual folks. But the people that my audience most loves and most talks about is when I interview my parents. And last night I interviewed my parents and I put a one minute clip out as a testament, I think, to my career and who follows me on social media, Twitter specifically, Jake Tapper of CNN retweeted it. His 3 million followers and then Rex Chapman, who has a million followers, also retweeted it. It was a minute of me talking to my parents. In the meantime, I'm over here booking, and reading books and and long form articles, to interview these highbrow intellectuals, and it's my parents' video that went viral. And so the idea is to not overthink things and do what you want to do and what's fun to do and what you think people will like, and put it out in as many different ways as you can. But that can all be really overwhelming too. How much should I put it out? Where should I put it out? You know, when should I put it out? And all that shit can be overwhelming. So you just got to do the things I think that you like and that you love. I hosted a show five days a week for almost four. 14 years at Sirius and I had several producers that I worked with over the years, but at the end, I had three people, three producers who helped me book. Obviously they, they ran the board and everything. It was a live show at screen, the phones. And now it's just me and my shed. It's a ton of work, but I like doing it and I've gotten decent at editing. So I edit it and I curate it. I talk to smart, good people and it's enough. I mean, it's, it's growing. What you want to do, I think is what I'm trying to say is pursue, you know, don't overthink all of the business of it. Just do things that you like and hopefully people like them. Otherwise,
1: why do it, really? You never know what's going to go viral. Like you talk about your parents, you never know how people are going to respond. But I will say that simple relations, I think, get a a very big response in today's time, you know? What do you mean? Like, for example, simple relations? Just simple relatability. Something that people can relate their lives to every day or what they do in their lives. I think that's what
2: comedians know more than anybody. I mean, maybe not necessarily. Well, yeah, in a way, because comedians understand that because we have to go on stage and we have to say something that the people listening can relate to and then hopefully if they do if it's a good night, it's a good joke, you feel them, you see that, you understand what it feels like for a person to relate to the words that you're saying and that goes for all of the rest of the content going to produce because I think one thing that was really fascinating and challenging at first for me was going from comedy clubs to big theaters and my career's on fire you know there's a lot of people at shows and I was opening for some big name comedians so sometimes I'd be in huge theaters, then I'd go into a studio there's nobody. Yet more people are listening than ever saw me live in a theater. But you have to imagine them in your mind. You're on live radio, national radio, but nobody's there, man. How do I know how they're going to feel if I say this or that? If they're going to laugh. Comedians who have a lot of experience, I think, in front of audiences over several years, bring to other spaces like podcast, YouTube, TikTok, et cetera. So you know what's good. And you doing stuff out in L.A. at all? I mean, I have in the past. The last time I was out there was to be on Real Time with Del Mar. And how, was, uh, how was Bill Maher? He's fine. He's exactly how you think. <laughs> exactly how you think he is. Kind of an asshole to everybody, <laughs> but that's why you kind of like him. I mean, that's why everybody likes him across the political spectrum. Like, it's really interesting how much liberals and conservatives hate Bill Maher and how much a lot of liberals and conservatives like Bill Maher. And, you know, he's hard to pin down. And it's a great show. He's always put out a good product no matter where he's been, I think.
1: And you said you had a show on Sirius for a while. How do you see that business model? Has that business model changed from when you first started? Oh, yeah. That's why I
2: no longer work there because they forced me out because they didn't want to pay people. Like I made really good money there. I worked my way up at Sirius and negotiated five contracts. I was making a shitload of money and then they found a way to hire people who would host shows for little to nothing through all kinds of different financing mechanisms. But there wasn't the kind of money I was making. So they're like, we love you, but we're not paying anybody that kind of money. I was going to say, unless they're Howard Stern, like there's a lot of very famous people, people who are far more well-known than I am that were working at Sirius with me that have now also been let go for the same reason, including Jenny McCarthy and, I mean, just so many well-known people. It's not brands or anything, it's just a, a financing mechanism. I don't know, I think satellite radio will continue to do pretty well because of the live news networks and the all of the live sports. They have every single sport live and it's still way easier to get it through SiriusXM than it would be anywhere else. I think as 5G ramps up, that starts to change and affects, again, a network that has as many brands, channels, relationships. I would never understood why SiriusXM's music music did well. But again, people like curated music. So I think it's rapidly changing, which is why they've spent so much money buying up all the other technology companies that do what they do, including Pandora. My
1: mentor, Kim Parks, he was big on Sirius when it was really hot. Every car had it and so forth. And they thought the stock was going to go out the roof. And I don't think the stock ever really went where they thought, because I think Apple kind of took away some of that share. I think the stock
2: doesn't really represent the success of the company. I think the success of Series XM. Granted, they fired me like a dog, so you know. But they didn't fire me like a dog. That's that's a joke. They, <laughs> they actually, after 14 years, like no, I was talking to a comedian complaining about having lost my amazing gig, and he's like, well, you complaining about? It. You had a 14 year gig. Nobody has that." Which really, you know, was kind of a cold cock of honesty to the face. But so I, and I have no, you know, bad feelings about that company. But I think my opinion, objectively, is that they do actually still have contracts with every major automobile manufacturer into the next several years and they do still have contracts with every single sports league. When you see the first you know, Ford, Chevy, Honda not make a car with Sirius XM in it, then you'll know that Sirius XM is losing market share to everybody else. But until you see that, until you see the NFL make a contract with another live national audio dealer, then I think that Sirius XM will continue. And I think Howard still is a huge attraction as well as a few other things. But I think as long as those things I said remain, then, you know, but th- those are the canaries in the coal mine. Where do you want to take your
1: podcast in five years?
2: I want to be in a larger shed. (laughs) I'm not even joking. The idea of working for myself from home after corporate media in Midtown Manhattan for a third of my life, this is way better for my stress, for my quality of life, for my own sense of control and sanity. I'm in the shed for two hours. I'm out of the shed for two hours in the woods, you know, building in my garden. I don't ever want to go back to corporate media. And like I said, I don't think corporate media is the future. I do like collaborating and working with people, So I hope to find a way to connect sheds, if you will. But in five years, I hope to be living in a different place that I like more than where we
1: live now and a different shed, preferably at the base of a mountain that I can ski down every morning. Nice, nice. So talking about New York, right? Has the intensity heightened since this pandemic? That's a a question I can't answer because I'm not like I'm out of the loop.
2: I'm out of the scene. Even if you phrase it differently in terms of as the intensity heightened, I think the intensity is heightened online. Who has the best ideas to take their career digitally, virtually, you know, whether it be, a po- I mean, you know, you've got a, a comedian like uh, Tim Dillon, who I don't know. This guy was killing it traditionally doing stand up, but he was also doing very funny video sketches that helped him build a, a social media, Instagram, I think, and probably YouTube. And now he's got a podcast and he's supporting it like I am through Patreon. And the numbers are like $90,000 a month. Yeah. I think that people like him are super smart and adaptive and have been able to find an audience online. And I think, so that's where the intensity, that's where the competition that's where the most importantly the creativity line what are you going to do when the comedy clubs are closed so that you don't have to go sell cars the club they're still closed now right in the city
1: um yeah
2: in the city i think most of the clubs are still closed i'm not positive where they're at right now it, it, it go, changes so rapidly right now our governor is trying not to lose his job
1: do you think the city comes back strong after some of this dust settles the comedy scene i think will
2: i think live performance is the question i don't think you need to talk about comedy i think you need to talk about comedy and music you know jazz clubs in new york but mostly you know comedy and theater so live performance i don't think the internet or any social media or any phone in your pocket will ever beat live performance i think people are scared to be sitting next to another person and an audience at a movie much less at a live you know broadway stage comedy club or jazz club i think it'll be weird for a while until it, it isn't and i think we will return to close to normal i think is is probably the, the least interesting but most likely answer
1: oh, you and your family respond when this
2: first came down? I thought it was over. I thought it was over for me. I mean, I thought it was over for me when I lost my job in October 19. I've documented this pretty well in my podcast and on Katie Couric's Medium page when I wrote an article about it, that losing my job saved my marriage was the title of that article. But I was starting to do well with the podcast. My wife was starting to, her her business was going well. She's like a health coach and a personal trainer and she would go see people and she's doing well. But all of a sudden you couldn't go see people. And a lot of my my money at that point was coming from stand-up and personal appearances and gigs. So all my gigs got canceled and we put really all the chips into this podcast and this shed. And um, that's really the only major investment. And it was really not much of an investment. I went daily and people responded because I was daily on Sirius XM and believe it or not, they waited and, and, and took me back in those listeners and are, are supporting me with subscriptions. So I went daily and it, it really started to take off. It's not near where I want to be, but you know, 820 paying subscribers is nothing to, to laugh at and, and keeping it consistent and keep adding, you know, if you can get to around 3000, 5,000, you're going to have a great lifestyle. And if you can have that lifestyle and do what you want to do and do gigs and do things virtually and do a hybrid of all of it, then good for you. I'm a big believer in people doing what they want and being as happy as they can without hurting other people.
1: Well, I'll tell you something we did as a family. This is how extreme we were. Like we'd follow the rules or whatever. She'd go out, we'd go to shop right or whatever. As soon as she walked in the door, she'd take off all her clothes, jump in the shower, yeah. wipe down. Down the cardboard boxes, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff. What do you think about that mindset initially compared to where we're at now? Well, I think
2: that was actually a, not an appropriate mindset initially. I think with a virus that kills you the way that this kills you, there's nothing wrong with being too scared of it. And as we learn more about it and that you can't get it by touching something off your groceries, people stop doing that. I have no problem with people overreacting to a goddamn viral pandemic. I have no problem at all, especially Americans. You know, it's Africans have a lot more... Uh, experienced Asians have a lot more experience with H1N1 and in Africa, Ebola. And so it's a different reaction, obviously different culturally as well. But in America, we've never had anything like this. And and neither is our parents or our grandparents. I never took my clothes off and got in the shower, but I was always more extreme than my wife. I did wipe down the groceries a few times until I did say I'd rather die choking on my own phlegm saying goodbye to my kids on FaceTime than wipe down (laughs) another box of tissues. But turns out science can only keep up with the virus as the virus mutates. And so, you know, you learn its behavior behaviors as it creates those behaviors and so now we know a lot more about it and now obviously the vaccines again with with science have been developed so it's such a game changer and the interesting thing lies in the discrepancies between couples themselves the husband the wife between two people who are partners if one person's way over here on anything but on hygiene or on fear like I'm way more concerned about the virus than my wife is and that crevasse that small disagreement can become a really big thing it's been hard for my my wife and I had some major fights over you know and our kids go here, my wife with her work and it's been tough for, I think for couples, you know, any
1: other effect. Yeah, I think you find out who you're really married to.
2: There's a really important question. I think that, that Americans just need to to try to have a more serious conversation with this question about do you care about strangers? Do you care about strangers? Because we've had a couple generations now of stranger danger and telling our kids to be afraid of strangers and there's, you know, pedophiles and rapists everywhere. And the truth of the matter is it's all bullshit. I mean, our kids are way safer than we were and yet we are way our generation of parents is much more afraid than our parents were. Why is that? You know, I have a lot of thoughts about that and there's a lot of research on it, but yeah, it's created a lot of problems because like a lot of other things, it's a, it's a question about how much do you care about other people that you don't know? And the mask thing, if you don't wear a mask in public, you don't care about other people as much as the person who wears a mask. And that's a weird thing. That's a weird litmus test. I feel that's it. You used to be able to think you could just tell that, like, I don't think that guy cares about anybody. That guy's an asshole. But now it's like that that's what it is. I I think it's kind of a sad signal in in a way. But that's who we are. I mean, America's always kind of we've been pretty greedy and selfish, I think it's fair to say.
1: The perpetuation of negativity, I think, in general, in society is very, very heavy. But people don't realize there's another side to that. I don't understand why we keep going down the negative side so much over and over and over and over again. If there was more of a positive thought process, you know, we could perpetuate positive. It's hard to be. I'm a very positive optimistic
2: person. I understand. It sounds like you're talking more about society as a whole. I think it's hard for us to move on and be positive when people keep getting away with bad things. And I think the people who start wars and destroy, you know, the value of our homes, you know do things that are there needs to be some accountability for the powerful, the way there are for the people who have no power, people have no power, go to jail for their whole lives for stupid shit that we all pay for. And the wealthiest, you know, I'm generalizing, of course, about both. Get away with
1: whatever they want. Let me ask you about this. There are some definitions out there of spirituality, and I think sometimes terms kind of separate the truth from.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. There are labels that when you're talking about spirituality or your morality or your religion or code, if you will, I think even those words, they don't help the conversation. So I think there's a morality. I have a code, a moral code that I live by, and it is most best articulated by just reading the universe. Declaration of Human Rights, which there's a document, it's like the U.S. Constitution. You know, it talks about everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. No one should be held in slavery. No one should be subjected to torture. And then when you think about religion or Christianity, which I came up in as a Catholic, you think about the Ten Commandments and there's a lot missing in the Ten Commandments. And so this is a far more thorough code and I think covers a lot more than a more religious type of code. So morally, I'm driven by that and I'm driven by doing my best to be a good person and that can be defined however we want. Right. So I don't like organized religion cause I find it so divisive and it's so male centered and I have daughters and you know, I want them to be leaders if they want and they can't be in the Catholic church, et cetera. I, I think I'm a radical in a lot of ways, spiritually, a lot of the things that I believe, but, but I really, I don't have any hangups with sex or sexuality at all. My, my thing with sex is as long as both parties or all parties are into it and it's adults, it's consensual. You can do whatever crazy things you want to do, but I just want my wife to take a shower with me. <laughs> Spiritually I do I meditate and I believe a lot. I think a lot about my health, but I'm not extreme in any in any kind of way. But I, I do a lot of mindfulness and meditation.
1: I'm very similar. I don't know if you've ever listened to anything like something Bruce Lee said, and I think it was in the sixties or seventies. He says when you create I a style wasn't in
2: the nineties.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I just never seen a guy make a comment like this. He said, you know, when you create a style, right? You start to crystallize growth, right? When you create a style, and then that style becomes the gospel, right? So if you're crystallizing growth and you're stopping that thought process, right, that becomes the truth. Right. Right. I firmly believe in that. I think there's so much more we don't know than we do know when it yeah. comes to spirituality. Yeah, I think growth is, is, is a fixed mindset,
2: which is don't ask questions. And, you know, this is what happens in life and fate and all that. And then there's a growth mindset, which is, I think, certainly what Bruce Lee believe and what it sounds like, you know, you you believe and in, in buy into as well. I think a lot about all this moral philosophy, I read about it and think about about it and try to develop my own. But generally speaking, I just like to ask people questions and learn more about any number of things in life and then play the best role I can in whatever relationships I'm in with folks, my wife, my kids, my parents, my audience, you know, the people who subscribe to my podcast. But I also think a lot about like nature, like nature is probably a huge as as close to I get to religion and that feeling that people have when they're in church and they think Jesus is right next to them on their lap or whatever that 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 amazing feeling that very religious people get, I would say that I get the exact same thing when I am with bugs, a sunset, full moon, doesn't matter. I'm very much connected to nature. It's very important for me, which is another reason why working this way and not in a corporate atmosphere is better for me. Firmly believe that is one of my strongest held beliefs that it's kind of everything. And it's one of the most important things that any person can do is get out and get in touch with nature as much as they can and understand what's nature and what's not. So I think that's super important. I'm like literally a tree hugger. I have had sex with a lot of trees, consensually,
1: of course. You know, and you talk about being in nature and you talk about kids, and I always try to talk about anxiety in society because I don't think a lot of people are addressing anxiety with some of the younger people, some of the people I've worked with and so forth. Think about technology, right? You have eyes, you know, you can see, you can smell, you can hear, you can taste. And you start to think about a child, whatever age, if they're 15, whatever, when they get their first phone or 12, whatever. And they, they're dialed into this phone, right? And they're putting all yep. their senses right here. Yep. And it's a swipe left world. To me, the more and more time they don't utilize their senses in nature, wherever they you know may be, and it, the more and more of the time they spend right here creates more of a, a reactionary person because when they get out and deal with somebody right, and they hear something that they haven't dealt with because they've been right here and this was their escape or whatever it is, the reaction is a lot more heightened than maybe mine and your reaction would be because we utilize our senses a little more differently when we were younger. Well, as long as we realize that we are no better than them, because if we
2: had these devices when we were younger, we would have been the exact same way because they are modern miracles. These kids have no idea this generation, what it means to be bored. There could be nothing better than being bored. That's where all creativity and so much comes from boredom in the car or anywhere else. And so, no, I mean, there's, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to unpack about the relationship between, you know, children and, and technology and what it's doing. And I also think though, that the research is really all over the place on it right now is, well. I mean, I think there's some things that are pretty well founded, but other things we don't quite know about. But the bottom line is in the worst situation is these kids now can be bullied not only at school, but in their bedrooms. There's no sanctuary for these young kids. And that's a real issue. So, you know, and the fear of missing out is like my, my daughters are looking at Snapchat and everybody they know, man, is in Florida right now because you can look at the, <laughs> the app and you can see people standing. You can see your friends and their icons standing at Epcot Center and they and now they feel bad for themselves. Why didn't we go to Florida? I have to say because daddy hates Florida. Florida, sweetheart. But, um, no, that's, that's not true. I did my internship at Disney world as a matter of
1: fact, oh, okay, cool. I worked at nice. Epcot center. It was awesome. How do we manage this better? And how do we find a better balance? Are we talking about our our own relationships with technology? Well, well, you know, helping kids understand, you know, yes, this is a lot of information. You will learn a lot from this technology, right? How do we implement a better management system so these bigger problems don't develop later in life? It's very hard. And I will tell you, anybody
2: that says that they know the answer to that doesn't because we just don't know. We don't know what effect it's, it's really having on them because as you just articulated well, there's a lot of both sides. Some things are really good and a lot of things are very bad. But I think going back to kind of my spirituality, like anything else, balance is everything. You're a diet that's balanced, exercise, relationships and a balanced relationship with your technology is probably the best thing you can hope for. It's very hard to establish that for ourselves. I got to turn off my phone. I got to turn off my watch. I got to, you know, turn off the world and go into the woods, much less for our kids who have no, you know, concept of it, much less a lot of the resources that, that they may never have to make certain decisions on balance. I mean, it's it's hard. So I don't think there's a good answer to that, John. I just don't.
1: Well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, there just has to be some awareness. You know, I, I think when we came up, there was a lot dare, you know, uh, uh. they had the big drug thing, you know, maybe there's something like that just to create a little awareness or whatever. So those are some things I think about. And then the spirituality well, as as thing, as,
2: much of a, as long as it's not as much of a failure as the dare program, the dare program has actually been a miserable <laughs> failure and more Kids like do drugs as a result of dare introducing them and telling them not to. Uh, I always my daughters went through that. I was like, oh, Officer Pete is coming to a dare. I'm like, oh, I bet you maybe that
1: maybe that wasn't a good example. No, but
2: (laughs) no, I think a better example might be another acronym, which is MAD: Mothers Against Drunk Driving. If we're talking about our generation, one really big cultural change was a lot fewer people died because of organizations and movements to get you know young people to not drink and drive, because that was a, a much worse issue, believe it or not, than it is now. So, but I don't know. I mean, I think that's why people need to work together. People need to communicate and establish organizations, not loose organizations, you know, and communicate and share best practices now more than ever, whether it's COVID, you know, your relationship with your phone or exercise, whatever, like people sharing ideas about how to navigate these things that we don't know that much about is super important, which is why I
1: love talking to people like you. Well, I think we have to be human beings again. Well,
2: you know, there's a lot of really interesting work being undone in conversations and books and, and studies. Studies being done on the future of the 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 hybrid, you know, the what do they call the human beings that are that are part robot? Meaning, we're gonna have all these things inside of us. We're still humans, but then you know, much less AI. And I, I mean, I don't like any of it. I'm kind of Ted Kaczynski at this point in my shed, minus the terrorism. He had a pretty good philosophy if he wasn't fucking killing people all the time. Just all this technology, I just I don't love it. I'm a nature guy. I think we're we're eating our planet alive, and so we need a better balance. But there's a lot of really important moral conversations being had by by bioethicists and economists, you know, about what the way forward is that is ethical. And I'm here for those arguments. I'm not smart enough to weigh in, but I'm happy to listen and decide where I stand. I'm getting
1: a clubhouse notification right now. A clubhouse notification. What's Are you that? on this
2: one yet? This app clubhouse. <laughs> it's crazy. Are you on this app Uh uh-uh. clubhouse? You don't know about this yet? No, I don't know about clubhouse. Ah, oh, dude, you'll know tomorrow. It's I've, I've never seen anything blow up as, as fast as this. And I accidentally connected it to my, my watch and it's notifying me all day that people want me to be in their clubhouse conversation. Clubhouse. Yeah, you have to be invited. I will send you an invite. They make it sound exclusive, but it's not at all. (laughs) When I first got invited, I was like, oh, yes, of course. And then I went out and I saw like that every single person I grew up with (laughs) (laughs) like farmers' daughters are on it. And I'm like, what? Who's not on this? I'm the last.
1: Who does it? I guess it's just another company, another tech company,
2: huh? I think you'd like it because of your business. It's a real networking, entrepreneurial type of thing. Yeah. People, you know, from all over, over the world, like networking and talking about whatever they're into, whatever their business is.
1: What is your go-to with your podcast, like your first platform? My understanding is that goes to the
2: the main places that you get the podcast within the one click. You know, it's everywhere that you get that most people get their podcasts, Apple and Spotify and Stitcher and Google and whatever else there are. And it also goes up on on YouTube. The audio goes up every day on youtube.com slash stand up with Pete, but I'm now starting to post a lot more video on there, but it's a lot. It's a lot of work, man, for one guy. I don't mind
1: it. I'm not complaining, but you know, I got to keep up once the distribution is done when you market do you take those links and try to promote them other places yeah yeah i don't know how much it works but yeah
2: i always post you know today's podcast up on twitter and facebook and and instagram i mean i do it every pretty much part of my workflow that's the last thing i do is set
1: it to you know i schedule tweets and do you do the sponsorships and everything yourself?
2: Yeah, I do. I unfortunately do. I would like to probably hire someone for that as well. But I'm, I am I'm, I have a hard time ethically taking money from companies unless they really believe in the company. And I'm very scrupulous. And so that's hard for me. My, my wife doesn't like it because my wife wouldn't care if I sold bullets and oil as long as we were making money. I have one sponsor, which I'm really proud of, which is GiveWell. And they're an amazing nonprofit, which helps solve the worst kinds of health problems, most impoverished. Areas in the world, so they sponsor the podcast, and I promote the hell out of this nonprofit that I believe in, and I feel good about it. I need to do more of those business deals, but I hate it. I hate the business end of it and the money end of it. I'm I'm really not good at it because I don't like it, and I've never been good at things I don't like.
1: And has somebody ever approached you try to like get into one of these groups like Podcast One or something Um, like that? Yeah,
2: I had a couple of those you know, coming from corporate media in such a corporate place, it, it, it made me not want to work with like any of these people who get a percentage. And so the question is still, do I need any of them? My answer is still no. I'm open to someone convinced me otherwise. But yeah, all the big networks like met with me and I was like, what do I, what do you get? And then they wanted me to have all these different, you know, sponsors and sell everything from underwear to eggs. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I want to do that yet. It's not about money. I'm, I want to make a lot of money. I want to make as much money as I can, but I want it to come from people to Directly To me, the subscription model for any media, anything from a newspaper to a podcast is the most ethically pure because the money goes directly from the subscriber to the creator in this Mm. case. And it's local and you you have access to the creator. We're seeing that everywhere now. And I think it's great, really great. And so some people want to add to that and and add and add corporate sponsors and stuff. And I'm not opposed to it because I haven't been so open, you know, in an offensive stance, trying to market myself to get that. My wife would like me to put it that way. man i hope she doesn't hear well
1: that's a that's a good thing i believe in that there's a lot of deals you should say no to To be fair i've taken money from all kinds of horrible
2: companies and corporate gigs over my career and i would go and do a speaking gig for a, a company or industry that i didn't believe in and then i would donate their money like if exxon wanted to hire me to come in and talk about sustainability i'd go and i'd fucking take their money and i would give it to the children of nature network like fine you want me to speak. It's the easiest thing in the world for me to come to your fucking place and speak. And you're gonna put me up in a five-star hotel and fly me, you know, first class, fine. I'll take the money and I'll give it to the, you know, so it's like, and it's all about what my kids, my daughters see me do. It matters to me. It's, it matters a great deal to me. What kind of person they think I am.
1: Yeah. That's a big deal. If you're passionate about something you build value in yourself and, and your message definitely is the most important thing.
2: Yeah. I think that's why I have, you know, some of the support I have, or go, I think people that know me, they weigh that part of it. They appreciate my character and my intentions and the way I talk and treat people as, as much as I can, you know, without hierarchy that life creates artificially. People appreciate that and they, they, they're they more likely to support you because, you know, someone talking about, you know, climate change is a dime a dozen. There's a lot of great people talking about that or any other number of important issues, right? Minimum wage increase or something. Every the There's a billion people talking about it, but which one do you want to support with your money? Is, it think, a, a fine, valid question and I ask myself that question. I support a lot of creators and have subscriptions to a number different places that I think are I'm so psyched that I that you know they get my money and and the people who subscribe to to me I think get that feeling too it's a real that's a good way to spend your money I think most people would agree.
1: I always say it's feeding the beast is to me cliché and mundane at this point and I think having a voice that means something is very very important, you know. It's not my voice on my show
2: that people really come for it's more the guests that join me that I facilitate but in a way that's a definition of my voice. This is my ethical belief is that we should not be spouting off about a virus if i'm a comedian or a plumber i'll talk to a virologist he's been studying it an epidemiologist a woman who's spent her life like fought ebola in africa i think i'll be listening to her and not joe rogan or pete dominic that's what i do that's what i believe in that's my my kind of like that's how we learn we learn from people who know what they're talking about and while there's been a deterioration of trust and expertise that's not because of me i still think that there's a lot of brilliant people in the world whose knowledge and resources can be tapped to make our lives better. So that's what I do with my podcast every day.
1: You think Joe Rogan talks more than he should? Uh, Yeah, I do. I do. I mean,
2: I was on his show. I mean, I, 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 both of us were talking more than we should. (laughs) Like (laughs) that would have been an interesting conversation. I would think people mistake entertainment too much. For like, I think there's an entertainment quality to my podcast, but I think it's a lot more of a public interest and educational because the people I'm talking to are academics, policy experts. Uh, investigators, they know what they're talking about. And I'm, I'm, you know, so it's more like reading a newspaper than it is watching a comedian or something. I mean, Joe does, well has a lot of great guests on and has a lot of great conversations a lot of things to learn from, but he also has a lot of idiots on and he says a lot of stupid
1: things that are just dumb, but you know, so do I. If someone's a specialist, let them be a specialist, you know, let them talk. You may teach somebody something someday. To be fair, Joe
2: is definitely always been having more of a conversation. So a conversation means both, you know, it's more like what you and I are doing, you know, people, both people are talking, having their having their voice heard, having their thoughts heard in the conversation. I do more of an interview on my show.
1: When you say interview, what is your first thought process? Asking
2: good questions, keeping the conversation interesting enough that people will want to keep listening. But doing it about issues that matter, that affect your life, your family, your, your community, country, your planet. You know I mean? Asking the questions that people care about that matter to them on those issues. Keeping it interesting. Keep it constantly interesting. Be interesting. Don't be boring. Newt Gingrich taught me. That that.
1: <laughs> well, Pete, I think you're a very dynamic guy, very clear thinker. There's not a lot of clear thinkers out there at this day and time, I don't think. So I appreciate you coming on the show.
2: Well, I, I love being a guest on other people's show and trying to share what I've learned, even if I'm struggling through it. It's great talking to you, man. And good luck to you. And I really appreciate you reaching out to me and, and your whole staff has been uh, very pleasant and easy to work with.
1: Well, thank you, sir. We can help you out anyway. We have a pretty big network on Facebook. I think we have about 25 million people on our, on our network. So Anything you want me to put out there for you, we'll do it. Yeah, just uh, just tell them about the
2: podcast, and hopefully they'll come listen, and then maybe they'll like it enough to want to support it with uh, with a couple of bucks. That's uh, that's all I ask because I love being in my shed. I'm around my family. I'm doing what I love. And I'd like to be able to c- continue doing it.
1: Well, I hope you get a, a different shed. The shed grows, and you keep doing your thing, man. Pete Dominic, great guy. Appreciate you having you on. This Thanks, has been Labrador. your Unimpressed Podcast. I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions.